recent evolution of targeted molecular therapy of a number of tumors, including renal cell cancer, has resulted in a new spectrum of side effects and toxicity somewhat different in nature than those associated with cytotoxic chemotherapy. I met with dermatologist Dr. Mario LaCouture, who developed a unique clinic providing dermatologic support for cancer patients being treated with EGFR antagonists and tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Dr. LaCouture began the conversation by discussing the background to his work. Our interest in dermatological toxicities to novel anti-cancer drugs, such as targeted therapies, began with the knowledge that these agents are otherwise devoid of systemic or hematopoietic side effects. Therefore, the high frequency of dermatological complaints affecting the skin, hair, and nails make these side effects of utmost importance. At the beginning, the initiation of this clinic, which is called the Series Clinic for Skin and Eye Reactions to Inhibitors of EGFR and Kinases, And a summary of how we carry out this clinic was published in the Journal of Supportive Oncology in May of 2006, is that we give rapid access to patients with dermatological toxicities to cancer drugs, as we understand the importance of these people to be maintained on these critical medicines. So when we started out looking at these side effects, the majority of these drugs were not even approved. They were still in phase one, phase two trials. And we were noticing how many of these patients were referred to dermatology for these side effects, and they had no option. Whereas a patient with an allergy to an antibiotic, for example, can be switched over to a different antibiotic and still obtain therapeutic success, with these patients, the majority of these drugs is their last resort. Therefore, we had to take into consideration that this was probably a life-saving or life-prolonging treatment in these patients, and we had to better understand and better manage these dermatological side effects and try to maintain patients on therapy for as long as possible. So that sparked our interest in this field, and later on, we were able to fulfill this by providing also rapid access. So we try to see patients rapidly within the same day or the next day and try to maintain them on therapy and treat them for the side effects. I'd like to explore a little bit what your experience has been with a bunch of different medications, including non-targeted medications, and maybe as comparison, particularly as when we talk about hand-foot syndrome. Why don't we start by focusing on sunitinib and serafinib? Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen with both of those agents? It's very interesting that with serafinib and sunitinib, the dermatological side effects are seen with high frequency in both the phase two and the phase three trials. For hand-foot syndrome or hand-foot skin reaction, as it should be called for that manifestation occurring in the palms and soles in these patients, data from phase three randomized studies showed that serafinib led to hand-foot skin reaction in 26% of patients, being of grade three to four in severity in only 5% of patients. With sunitinib, the development of hand-foot skin reaction occurred in also a significant proportion of patients, in 20% of patients, of which only 5% were of grade 3 to 4 in severity. As you will point out, the hand-foot syndrome also has occurred with other agents, such as fluorouracil with pegylated doxorubicin or doxyl, and it seems to be clinically and histologically distinct from the hand-foot skin reaction occurring with serafinib and sunitinib. 
Whereas with those more conventional agents, you would have swelling, redness, and pain diffusely through the palms and soles. Now what you have is more of a thickening of the skin. This thickening, when it is subject to pressure in the pressure points, leads to bleeding underneath those thickened areas, causing significant pain. So whereas with the other agents, you would see more of a thinning out of the skin, here you see more of a hyperkeratosis and thickening of the skin. What about, you mentioned histologically, what's the difference there? So histologically with the other patients, what you tended to see was damage in the basal layer of the epidermis, which is the layer of cells which are constantly dividing, and which perhaps is mimicking what is hopefully occurring in the tumors, i.e. those rapidly dividing cells are now undergoing apoptosis or inhibited cell growth. With these agents, on the other hand, what we see is more of a hyperkeratosis or a thickening of the outermost layer of the skin, the stratum corneum, and in some cases, we also see destruction of the sweat glands, and which is accompanied by an infiltration, a mixed inflammatory infiltrate surrounding the upper dermis as well as the sweat glands, which supports the notion that perhaps sweat does play a role in the development of these undesirable side effects. There have been some studies showing that the excretion of these agents, in particular pegylated doxorubicin, is excreted through the sweat, and that is perhaps why the occurrence of this side effect. You have the highest density of sweat glands in the palms and the soles, and consequently you will have the greater frequency of this side effect in the palms and the soles. Can you talk a little bit about the case report that you just published in the JCO of hand stump syndrome? I was fascinated by that and also curious whether that's been reported with the fluoroprimidines and more conventional agents. Yes, we were very interested in that case because it supported the idea that sweat does play a role. In this gentleman, diagnosed with renal cell cancer, treatment with sorafenib had been taking place for about two months. And it turned out that this man had an above-the-knee amputation many years ago, and he wore a prosthesis. Keep in mind that these prosthetic devices have a very thick polymer casing that covers the entire thigh. And when this patient developed a hand-foot-skin reaction manifested by thickening of the palms and the right sole, which was present because he had his right leg intact, it was also accompanied by this very red, thickened, and eroded area in that area that was covered by the thick plastic coating that was part of his prosthetic device, supporting the idea that perhaps the accumulation of sweat underneath that prosthetic device perhaps could have led to increased levels of this drug in the skin, leading to tissue damage, which hopefully is what is occurring in the tumor. Although the role of trauma should not be minimized, from observing later patients, I have noticed, for example, that patients that use these handheld devices, such as blackberries and so forth, they tend to get a more severe hand-foot-skin reaction in the thumbs as well as the index fingers, areas that are subject to that constant pressure and trauma from the typing in these small keyboards. Now, are you saying that there's a fundamental difference in terms of the relationship to the sweat glands with sunitinib and serafinib compared to fluoropyrimidines and doxel, for example? 
Or is that it's the same mechanism? I think it perhaps is the same mechanism as one may recall that previous studies, case reports mostly showed that with those other agents, you would also see a greater severity of erythema and a dermatitis-like reaction, which was chronologically related to the hand-foot syndrome in areas, for example, under EKG leads or areas that were covered with tape or other occlusive devices. What's the natural history or the time evolution typically of when these symptoms and signs develop, and what about management? The hand-foot-skin reaction tends to develop after the first month of therapy. With the use of sorafenib, in which a 400 milligrams twice-daily administration is uninterrupted, you tend to see it earlier on than with the use of sunitinib or sutent. As this drug allows for a two-week drug holiday, it's administered at a 50 milligrams daily dose for four weeks, followed by two weeks of interruption. Therefore, patients are able to recover from that tenderness and pain in that two-week drug holiday. It seems to be a later event, whereas first with these drugs, you see the flushing, the red face, and the seborrheic dermatitis-like reaction within the first two to four weeks. This hand-foot-skin reaction tends to occur later on, after the first or the second month. The natural history tends to be that it tends to become worse over time if it is not managed. As you may know, there are currently no randomized control trials as to how to best manage this adverse effect. We have attempted to use uh, high concentration of urea-containing preparations, such as urea 40% creams. These agents are keratolytics, so they disrupt the outer layer of the skin, the stratum corneum, and they seem to thin out that thickened layer which may be responsible for that increased pressure per unit area leading to that increased pain. In addition, we also prescribe high-potency topical steroids, such as clobetasol ointment, as this will hopefully minimize the proliferation or the division of those skin cells, otherwise known as keratinocytes, and will also decrease that underlying inflammation that results as a consequence of that increased trauma that is magnified by that thickened area underneath those pressure points. And any sense about how much aggressive management contributes to the overall reduction in symptomatology? Is it something where you can really make a major difference? I feel very strongly about treating these patients in a prophylactic fashion. And this is something that we are trying to do not only with multi-targeted kinase inhibitors like serafinib and sunitinib, but also with other agents such as EGFR inhibitors, which, as you know, develop this acneiform rash in 75 to 87% of patients. As is the notion in oncology in which you want to treat a cancer earlier, skin diseases also behave in a similar fashion in the sense that it is earlier to treat a disease when it is just beginning than when it has been prolonged or exacerbated. Therefore, I currently encourage all patients to use the urea 40% creams in a prophylactic fashion once they begin treatment with either of these agents. If we recall the data from the phase two studies with serafinib in which up to 60% developed hand-foot skin reaction, and there are minimal to no side effects with these topical agents, such as the urea 40% cream, I think it is important to maintain patients on prophylactic therapy until we find better treatments for this side effect. And where exactly do you tell them to apply it? I tell patients to apply the urea 40% cream twice a day in the palms and the soles. They should avoid other areas of the body, such as intact skin, body folds, and face, as this agent can be keratolytic and destroy the superficial layers of the skin, becoming irritative in other areas of the body. In addition, 
We also gave patients a prescription for a high-potency topical steroid, such as clobetasol ointment, and we indicate to patients to apply this once they start feeling any symptoms of tenderness or thickening of those areas that are already being treated with the urea cream. Any sense for how much this preventive approach has an impact? I believe that it allows patients to tolerate these side effects more. And I think that this is not a perfect treatment, but the patients that we have treated in this fashion have not needed those interruption or modification due to this side effect alone. So I believe that early intervention with these two agents may allow your patients to be maintained on therapy for a consistent and long period of time. Any attempts to look at this in a randomized trial or clinical research setting? Indeed, and we are currently beginning accrual for a randomized trial in which patients will be placed on an arm, which will be regular occlusive agents, which are used ubiquitously in oncology, and another arm will be randomized to use the urea 40% cream, and another arm will be the high-potency topical corticosteroids. So that study is currently awaiting approval by the IRB and will start accrual hopefully later this year. That's interesting. Now, that's going to be in a preventive mode? Yes, it will be in a preventative mode. It is important to keep in mind that these drugs may be photosensitizing or may sensitize individual skin to the damaging effects of UV radiation. So patients should be encouraged to use broad-spectrum sunscreens, i.e. those containing zinc or titanium, to avoid sun exposure. And also, patients are frequently affected by other skin or dermatological side effects. The major categories of these dermatological side effects can be divided into four. One is a photosensitive or flushing-type skin reaction in which the patients develop a red erythematous face and upper trunk or areas that are exposed to the sun. This can be associated with a burning sensation and also can be treated with topical corticosteroids. Another very common side effect is a seborrheic dermatitis-like rash. Seborrheic dermatitis is another name for dandruff, and essentially patients will develop these red scaly lesions on their scalp, the nasolabial folds, and the ears. This side effect is minimally symptomatic, yet requires treatment because of the cosmetic impact in patients. The other common side effects occurring in these patients that you may know are the alopecia or the hair loss that affects up to 52% of patients and the appearance of splinter hemorrhages underneath the nails. And this may be due to the inhibition of VEGFR, which leads to an inability of those capillaries that line the nail beds to normally repair themselves. Can you talk a little bit more about the alopecia, how much is seen, is it seen in women as well as men? Yes, the alopecia was seen in up to 52% of patients in trials with serafinib and to a lower extent in trials with sunitinib. Studies have been done with other agents which are more frequently associated with alopecia and have shown that hair loss in cancer patients is a major source of psychosocial discomfort. Therefore, if patients are informed about this potential side effect, it would also be important in terms of counseling. Not only do patients develop alopecia or hair loss of the scalp, but hair tends to grow differently, becoming more curly and wavy. The reason as to why this occurs, it's not known, but it is something that is also seen with agents that inhibit other kinases, such as EGFR inhibitors. And it tends to occur in a similar fashion in both men and women, and indeed the impact of this side effect will be greater in women. 
Another common finding that is associated with this alopecia is dysesthesia of the scalp. In other words, an increased sensitivity of the scalp. Some patients attribute the hair to leading to this sensation of increased sensitivity or pain in the scalp. Several of these patients that I have seen reports that cutting their hair off leads to improvement in this symptom, although we do not routinely advocate this because patients are loath to cutting off all their hair, of course. What is the time course of the development of the alopecia, and how significant is it? I mean, is it complete alopecia? Is it thinning? What do you see? It also tends to occur later on. It doesn't occur initially, but it tends to occur after two to three months. The alopecia also is associated with that erythema or redness of the scalp, which suggests that there is inflammation and vasodilation occurring in that area. And it does not tend to be a complete alopecia like you would see with conventional agents, but as you indicate, more of a thinning of the hair on the scalp associated with that curling of the hair. So importantly, the alopecia can also be associated with hair discoloration. So hypopigmentation of the hair is frequently seen in patients treated with the KIT inhibitor sunitinib. As you may know, KIT-positive melanocytes line the hair follicles, and once this receptor is inhibited, the hair pigmentation unit composed of melanocytes or pigment-forming cells will be inhibited, preventing this hair from being colored. And in some interesting cases, you will see patients treated with sunitinib that will have banded hair. So they will not pigment hair when they're on the four-week administration of drugs, and then they will repigment once they are on the two-week drug holiday. Anything else you want to say about dermatologic issues with these two agents? Any home remedies you hear people talking about or anything else you want to comment on? Yes, there are a number of myths and I would say folk stories, as you indicate, running around there as to how to best treat these agents. One of the ones that I have seen is partially effective is the use of highly occlusive topical agents such as utter cream and Vaseline and those very thick emollients on the hand-foot skin reaction. It turns out that studies have shown that once you occlude skin by the use of a heavy moisturizer or emollient, you are able to block the proliferation or division of keratinocytes or skin cells. Therefore, that may explain why some of these patients benefit from these drugs. If you are inhibiting cell proliferation, you may be able to inhibit that thickening which leads to the hand-foot skin reaction. Other than that, agents that are used for the photosensitive type reaction include the topical agent pimecrolimus, which goes by the trade name of Eladil, applied to those red areas on the face and scalp as well as ears, or medium potency topical corticosteroids may be of benefit in decreasing the inflammation in these patients as well. What's the magnitude of severity that you've observed with this syndrome? How often do you see patients who are really seriously uncomfortable and it causes you know, quality of life and performance status issues? In terms of the hand-foot skin reaction? Mm-hmm. I only see patients that are manifesting with dermatological toxicities. I will only see those patients that have the most severe toxicities. But I believe that data from the pivotal studies which showed that only 5% of patients developed a grade 3 to 4 severity in their hand-foot skin reaction, that is perhaps an accurate description of the frequency of it. However, in terms of the impairment of quality of life, I think that number is much greater and a greater number of patients are affected. As you know, most of these patients will be encouraged to avoid exercising, to avoid taking long walks, 
to avoid performing any hobbies that entail any manual labor or activity. So therefore, patients will be impaired from those activities that may bring them about some relief or some occupation during their cancer therapy. We are currently developing a disease-specific quality of life scale for the hand-foot skin reaction occurring secondary to these agents which would hopefully be employed in a greater number of these trials and would be critical for the interventions directed against this hand-foot-skin reaction as it will hopefully ascertain those differences between interventions against this side effect. Are there any other major dermatologic issues in therapy of renal cell carcinoma, other agents, for example, where there's major dermatologic issues? Well, for example, if we look at other agents that have been used in the past, such as interferon alpha, we know that a number of dermatological diseases perhaps will not be started de novo with the use of interferon alpha, but will be triggered by this agent in people that have underlying skin diseases. For example, psoriasis, which is that skin disease characterized by these thick, red, scaly plaques, will be worsened by interferon alpha, such as will seborrheic dermatitis or dandruff, as well as other more nondescript skin toxicities, such as a maculopapular reaction and a pruritic dermatitis. So this interferon alpha is associated to a certain extent with dermatological toxicities. However, none are believed to be as frequent and as significantly disabling as those that occur secondary to the use of these novel multi-targeted agents. What about the mTOR inhibitor? With mTOR inhibitors, we haven't seen that many dermatological toxicities. So, Okay. What are the other major sort of clinical syndromes and agents that you're dealing with in your very interesting clinic? The majority of the patients that we are currently seeing in our clinic are patients treated with epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors. As these drugs lead to a papillopustular reaction in 75 to 87% of cases. The importance of this reaction is not only due to its high frequency and the fact that these agents are otherwise devoid of hematopoietic or systemic side effects, but also that there are interventions that are fairly successful and effective in managing this untoward side effect. Is there much of a difference between what you've observed or what you know about in terms of cetuximab versus panitumumab? There doesn't seem to be a major difference between the rash between the, both of those agents. There is a difference between the low molecular weight agent, erlotinib, tarsiva, and the monoclonal antibodies that you have just indicated with the monoclonal antibodies causing a rash that tends to be of greater severity and perhaps more difficult to treat. And can you talk about sort of how you approach prevention and management in the patients receiving the antibodies as well as with erlotinib? Patients that are treated with epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors are managed in a very early and proactive fashion. Patients that develop starting from a grade one rash, we treat patients with topical agents such as topical medium potency corticosteroids or the topical calcineurin inhibitor protopic or elodil. However, we favor the use of topical medium potency corticosteroids. Patients with a grade 2 rash or above, a neoform rash to EGFR inhibitors, we use a combined therapy of oral tetracycline antibiotics, such as doxycycline or minocycline, 100 milligrams twice daily, in combination with medium-potency topical steroids. We have found that with this regimen, we have dramatically reduced the number of patients that need dose modification or discontinuation secondary to the use of these agents. Importantly, we try to maintain patients on therapy with the oral agents for about four to six weeks, and then we reassess. 
whether they have improved or not. The topical agent, we maintain patients on that on a PRN basis after the rash has resolved. We allow patients to use it as they feel they need it, in other words, whenever the rash is reappearing. So when you utilize this approach, how much of an impact do you think it's actually having? I believe it has a dramatic impact, and not only in minimizing the symptoms associated with the rash, and something that we are trying to bring out is the fact that most of these patients with these dermatological side effects, these are not side effects that are important because of the cosmetic implications of it and the psychosocial. These side effects, such as the acneiform rash with EGFR inhibitors, the hand-foot-skin reaction, are also frequently associated with symptoms such as burning sensation, tenderness, and in some cases, pruritus. Therefore, we have found that patients indicate that lack of sleep is one of their major distressing factors as they are not able to sleep because of the pain associated with the skin lesions. So that's why we try to encourage an early intervention of these side effects to minimize the appearance of these disabling symptoms and to enable patients to continue consistent antineoplastic therapy. Now, all of these agents are hopefully going to move their way into the adjuvant setting where you have people who you know, are being treated to reduce their potential risk of relapse, but also people who are receiving therapy that you know, maybe are already cured or destined to relapse anyhow. How do you think from a sort of psychosocial point of view, this is going to sit in adjuvant therapy? I think that you have just pointed out what could perhaps be what will bring about these dermatological side effects into the front line in terms of importance, in terms of developing these clinical trials. As you very well indicate, when patients will be given the choice to receive one of these agents and say they see these dermatological side effects that can occur for such a long period of time, these will become even increasingly important. I think that this will be a major obstacle to the optimization of these agents in their use in the adjuvant setting. As therapies that are prophylactic in this setting, although there is data, have not been performed in a randomized controlled setting. So that is why we feel that there is an urgency for the development of randomized controlled trials in order to develop these prophylactic therapies against these side effects. We're hoping to present data from the use of our algorithm for the management of epidermal growth factor receptor-induced toxicities. Your algorithm, that's interesting. Yes. Can you talk about what your algorithm is? Yes. Our algorithm was published in the May issue of the Journal of Supportive Oncology, and essentially it includes the use of the tetracycline antibiotics, doxycycline or minocycline, in addition to the topical immunomodulator pimecrolimus, Illidil, or a medium-potency topical steroid. And one thing that I would like to mention is that the use of tetracycline antibiotics is not due to their antimicrobial activity, but because of their anti-inflammatory activity. These agents have been used for many decades in dermatology for this property in other skin diseases in which infection does not play a major role, such as acne and rosacea. And we believe, and I believe that most of the data supports the fact that the rash occurring secondary to epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors is underlined by an inflammatory phenomenon and that infection is not a critical component only in certain cases and especially affecting the body folds and areas that are severely damaged in terms of their outermost barrier. What do we know about the impact of tetracyclines on the inflammatory response? We know that in vitro tetracycline antibiotics, doxycycline and minocycline, have the ability to inhibit neutrophil migration and also have the ability to inhibit the synthesis of matrix metalloproteases, which, as you know, are largely responsible for the destruction of collagen in a number of skin diseases, such as acne and rosacea. 
And there was data presented at this year's American Academy of Dermatology meeting by a group at Memorial Sloan Kettering showing that the use of minocycline 100 milligrams twice daily led to a statistically significant reduction in the number of lesions in patients treated with the monoclonal antibody cetuximab. Anything new in terms of the mechanism of action of how both erlotinib as well as the antibodies causes the skin reaction, and also the question of the correlation between the skin reaction and therapeutic response? The underlying mechanism as to why epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors lead to these untoward side effects is an alteration in EGFR signaling in the basal or proliferative keratinocytes. These skin cells are constantly dependent on EGFR signaling, and once this pathway is interrupted, you will now have a number of negative consequences, including decreased migration, decreased proliferation, decreased protection against UV radiation, and increased inflammation. And this leads to the appearance of the papulopustules, as well as the associated symptoms of swelling and tenderness in the fingernails, or the paronychia that is also seen in up to 16% of these patients. What about the issue of correlation of anti-tumor response with skin reactions? Multiple studies across all agents, both the low molecular weight agents as well as the monoclonal antibodies, have shown that patients with a worse rash tend to have a better clinical response. And the reason as to why that occurs is not known. Some speculate that it represents a more robust immune response, enables you to develop a more severe papulopustular reaction, and also allows you to have a more efficient anti-tumor response. But perhaps the answer lies in that you will have greater bioavailability of these agents. You have a greater blood level of these drugs that will lead to the more severe rash, and they will also lead to a better anti-tumor response. It has been shown with the low molecular weight agent Tarsiva that the area under the curve in the first 24 hours the greater the area under the curve in the first 24 hours, the greater the possibility of developing the rash, supporting the notion that the higher initial level of these drugs does lead to a greater severity of rash. And this very important correlation has also led to the development of several protocols in which patients are being dosed until they develop a rash, which is of critical importance as in the future, most oncologists and oncology nurses will need to be able to treat this rash in an effective fashion as the way things are going, most patients will be treated until they develop this rash. What are some of the common questions that you receive from medical oncologists about these syndromes? One of the most common questions is whether the rash that occurs secondary to serafinib nexavar may also correlate with survival, and there is some evidence to the fact that patients with serafinib-induced rash may also correlate with survival, perhaps indicating also greater bioavailability. And also a very common question that we receive is whether the rash secondary to the multi-targeted kinase inhibitors, such as serafinib nexavar and sunitinib sutant, is similar to that occurring secondary to EGFR inhibitors. And the in vitro inhibitory profile of these agents is completely different. Therefore, the rash secondary to EGFR inhibitors should not be confused to the rash secondary to multi-targeted kinase inhibitors, such as sunitinib and serafinib. It is completely different, both in its clinical presentation and its response to therapy with doxycycline or with tetracycline antibiotics being ineffective against the rash to the multi-targeted kinase inhibitors. 
Some of the most useful factors that I have found is providing patient counseling. Patients would like to know what side effects they are to expect. They are not very keen on seeing photographs of patients developing these dermatological side effects, but they are interested in seeing or reading written information. There is a wonderful website, plwc.org or peoplelivingwithcancer.org. It's an ASCO website, and they have a section on skin reactions to targeted therapies, which we print it out and give it to patients in order to give them some information so they know what to expect. And another factor that we have found particularly useful is the rapid access and early intervention towards these toxicities. So we tell patients at onset of therapy with the multi-targeted kinase inhibitors, if you develop any signs of dermatological toxicity, please contact us. We will see you as soon as possible, and we will initiate therapy then. And I think that gives a great deal of comfort to patients as they know if they do develop any type of toxicity, they will be seen and hopefully will manage it in an effective fashion. It's interesting that your perception is that patients don't like to see photographs. Why do you think that is? Well, actually, I was surprised. Initially, I thought they would, but from asking many of these patients, I would explain to them what side effects they may expect, and then I would follow that question or that statement by asking them whether they would like to see photographs, and almost uniformly, they would say no. Sometimes these dermatological conditions are very unsightly, so I think people do not want to see what they would look like. And from speaking to many of these patients treated with multi-targeted kinase inhibitors, one of the things that was very eloquent from one of these patients was the fact that the rash she developed to one of these agents changed who she was, her perception of herself. And I think that was very touching because this lady felt that she no longer was the person she was before therapy and that prolongation of life under these circumstances, in her mind, was not worth it as she was no longer able to do the things she wanted to do or see the people she wanted to see. So this is why we try to, since most of these agents result in a prolonged survival, we try to treat these patients in a very proactive fashion so that they may be able to continue their lives as normal as possible. This is a pretty unusual interest that you have. How did it develop? Well, it began when I worked at the University of Chicago, and a lot of these agents at the time were in phase one, phase two. And when these patients were referred, I realized that there were no other options. This was their last therapy. And if we told the patient, please, what occurs sometimes, which is tell your oncologist that you can't take this medicine anymore, that was really the last opportunity for that patient to be able to live. So I thought that there was a desperate need for someone to try to better understand these side effects and to try to better improve these patients' quality of life. And ever since we began doing this about three to four years ago, currently my practice is only seeing patients treated with cancer drugs, and it has been an extremely rewarding experience, not only the fact that I've been working with these patients, but also working with oncology, which is perhaps one of the most innovative and exciting fields in medicine. So when you look at the whole spectrum of dermatologic or cutaneous side effects of anti-cancer therapy, are there any in addition to the ones that we've talked about so far? I believe that some of the agents that lead to the most frequent and disabling toxicities include pegylated doxorubicin or doxyl, as it leads to a hand-foot syndrome that can be severely disabling, and also taxotier leads to severe nail problems, which frequently necessitate drug interruption or discontinuation, as this may lead to superinfection of the nails. 
any comments on that syndrome in terms of prevention, treatment, and also the tearing syndrome that's seen with docetaxel? In terms of the treatment for hand-foot syndrome, what has been found and the evidence for a lot of this information is not the most robust evidence. It's the use of ammonium lactate. This was presented at ASCO about two years ago. And ammonium lactate goes by the trade name of lachydrin in a prophylactic fashion, applied to the hands twice daily. This was given as a 12.5% formulation. And this is a moisturizer that we also use in other areas of the body, so this is very safe to use. And also high-potency topical corticosteroids are used for the treatment of hand-foot syndrome. For the docetaxel nail problem, what we are currently doing is at our institution, we have these elastogel gloves. We place them in the freezer, and then patients, once they are receiving their infusion, they place their feet and their hands inside those gloves. This cooling leads to decreased blood flow to their hands and feet, minimizing the development of docetaxel-induced nail toxicities. And the use of these gloves originated in France and was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2005.